You're listening to pianist and 2017 NEA Jazz Master, Dick Hyman. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast from the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Pianist Dick Hyman combines virtuosity with extraordinary versatility. A masterful improviser on the keyboard, his heart is absolutely in jazz. Yet, he's also a composer of chamber music, a prolific, award-winning studio musician, an orchestrator and arranger who's worked with a who's who of jazz singers. And he's composed the soundtracks for more than a dozen Woody Allen films. He was music director at NBC for five years. Dick Hyman has worked as a solo artist. He's played with small bands, and he's played with full-size orchestras. Hyman was one of the first musicians to record on a Moog synthesizer, and he created and ran the Jazz in July series at the 92nd Street Y in New York City. In other words, he's a musical shapeshifter. The word zelig comes to mind, which actually is appropriate since Dick Hyman composed the soundtrack to that movie. Dick Hyman is now 90 years old, and he's put aside many of the hats he's worn in order to focus on the thing he loves most, playing solo jazz piano. Piano and jazz have been the two constants in Dick Hyman's professional life. His uncle might have been a concert pianist and Hyman's first teacher, but it was Dick's older brother who led the way to the music that would come to define him. My uncle... Anton Rovinsky was a, a pianist, a concert pianist. He played recitals in various places, settled into teaching, and I was one of his pupils at one point. So he was the main musical member of the family. The other most influential, maybe more influential, was my big brother, Arthur. My brother was the one who collected all of these uh, uh, 78 RPM records, which you can see up there, which were tremendously influential on me. I memorized them. I still play them, and I know them all very well. The records from the 1920s by uh, Bix Beiderbecke and Louis Armstrong and Jelly Roll Morton and all kinds of people. That was the bigger influence even than, than my uncle Anton because it, it got me right into this kind of music at a very impressionable age. Can you remember the feeling you had when you first heard jazz? The first recordings that my brother brought home from college played for me and gave me to understand that they were going to be very important were recordings of Bix Beiderbecke, who was a trumpeter of the 1920s. Those, those were the first recordings. But then we branched out, and now that I look back at it, I can see he was really instilling a whole uh, curiosity and reverence and appreciation of jazz. And I continued my interest in uh, the whole, whole music and the whole phenomenon. It's really guided me through my life, the whole uh, study of jazz. And, and of course, it, it worked very well with my peculiar talent, which is I improvise very well. How did you learn how to play jazz? By listening to these records and by being guided first by my brother, then other musicians I was fortunate enough to play with as a kid, and by experience. And it was fortunate for me that all of this was centered in New York City, 
and I was there, or at least on the edge of it. And you went to college in New York City? Yes, I went to Columbia, and it was a very easy transition from being a college student in New York to being a uh, working musician. Columbia was a very good school in a lot of ways. First of all, it was in New York. So I could go down and hear, hear people playing on 52nd Street or in Greenwich Village. But in the college itself, I got to uh, write a varsity show and play one, maybe two others as the second pianist. You studied with Teddy Wilson. How did that come about? When I was in college, a local radio station, WOV in New York, decided to have a jazz piano contest. And I went down and I won the thing. The prize for winning that contest was 12 lessons with Teddy Wilson. And I did study with him. He was very influential. I remember one time I asked him why it was that although it seemed to me I was playing fairly well on some days, on the next day I might be playing very poorly. And he said, that's why you practice, which was a life lesson I've never forgotten. <laughs> you were playing professionally, too, around New York at this time? Yes, at, at times I did play, and it was easy to make the transition into uh, going after more of a serious uh, professional playing. What was your first professional job? Well, the first job, actually, the first, the first job I had when I graduated and got married, incidentally, around the same time, was playing in Harlem at a place called Wells Music Bar, which was on 7th Avenue and 132nd Street. And I went directly from our honeymoon weekend into Wells, met a lot of people there, a lot of other players and a lot of other uh, jazz sort of people. What was the jazz scene like in New York then? Well, it varied, you know. It was a lot grimmer than I realized at the time. There was all kinds of uh, problems with the police department and drugs and uh, race things, but I was uh, young and uninformed, and I, I just sailed on through it. For me, it was a, a lovely time. We'd go up to Wells, and I would play until uh, 3.30 or 4, and that was kind of normal for places. And that led to other jobs, of course, I was becoming connected with uh, jazz people. There is a distinction between jazz people and uh, people who are not jazz people, who can be close friends and very proficient. But the jazz community is something else. You all recognize that among each other that you have certain improvisatory gifts. And I began to know people and to uh, work particularly with uh, Tony Scott, who was a wonderful clarinetist at that time, and uh, he got me to play with him at a club called Cafe Society downtown. It was in Cafe Society that I was able to hear Art Tatum close up. He was the feature for two or three weeks, and Art Tatum was the greatest uh, pianist there ever has been in jazz. He's the ideal of uh, most of us in the, in the field then, and I suspect now. I did see him there and talk with him uh, occasionally. It was like talking with a god. One thing led to another, and at the age of 23, Dick Hyman found himself on tour with Benny Goodman. I was recommended to play with his one of his sextets, and we went on a European tour. This was 1950. 
and uh, we played all the uh, all the places in uh, Europe and, and Italy and, and France and Scandinavia at any rate. And I stayed in connection with Benny thereafter. And occasionally I would get a call from him to play a particular date with him or a recording or something or other. Uh, he was another great guiding post of, of my career. How did you hook up in the first place? I think it was just word of mouth. I was recommended. Benny was always changing personnel. That was one of his uh, most uh, noticeable uh, peculiarities, and he had a number of them. And uh, it got to be my turn at a certain point. At any rate, that that tour lasted, I don't know, a month or maybe six weeks. You must have learned so much in that six-week tour. Yeah, I, I did learn. What did I learn? Well, I learned about about the grueling nature of tours, of, of music tours in general, not just jazz, having to uh, get on a plane or a train or something in between each one and show up in the next day and give your best for another performance. It can be very grueling for after a while, and I admire people who do that mostly for a living. I did not want to do that mostly for a living. As performers know, it's a tricky piece of business to be a working musician and support yourself if you don't want to tour. But Dick Hyman found a way out. What was happening in New York was that the record business was beginning to boom. Everybody was recording. Record companies were having a wonderful time, and there were all sorts of freelance recording opportunities, and I began to record under my own name, too, solo piano things or things with little bands. And along with that was the fact that each of the networks in New York had a staff orchestra. CBS, ABC, and NBC, where I joined and stayed for five years, was a tremendous orchestra because it encompassed the NBC symphony. But in addition to the symphonic people, they had uh, music for other sorts of uh, occasions, too, and I joined primarily to work an early morning breakfast show live at 7.05 in the morning. So we would play early morning radio, and then some of us would be scheduled to play a little later in the morning another breakfast show, and we'd rush up to the NBC television studios and get involved in a show with Maury Amsterdam, which was called uh, Breakfast with Music. At NBC... It fell to me to uh, learn organ, Hammond organ. After a bit, they had me doing game shows in the in the style of those days, and soap operas. So. It was almost like touring within New York City. Well, that was the point, and that's what I early on recognized was the better course for me. I can see now where my activities were really beginning to split. On the one hand, there was the the jazz people and the jazz gigs and jazz recordings. On the other hand, it was studio work, which could be almost anything. because you were doing that studio work that that sort of helped with your versatility when you were did jazz. Oh, undoubtedly. The, the point of my career then, and maybe still, is versatility. Maybe a little less now. 
I'm, I'm not trying to prove how versatile I can be anymore. But at that time, I really was. And I not only didn't mind, but I relished peculiar difference of things that I might get to do in one day from playing a soap opera or game show organ to uh, doing a jazz recording. There's the studio part of your life and, and the jazz part of your life. And what's happening at jazz or what's really happened is bebop has exploded yeah. as exemplified by Parker and Gillespie. Mm -hmm. What did that mean for your playing and how you approached the well, piano? I had to learn, as we all had to learn, what it was, the, the very, very new way of playing that both of those people represented, Parker and Gillespie, and the whole bebop movement. It, it was a different language, and you had to learn that. And I was willing to do that. Some people didn't. Some people wanted to stay in the 1920s. Some people wanted to stay in the 1930s. It was fine with me to go on and see what was happening right then. at Birdland practically from the time it opened its doors. Did you know Charlie Parker? Charlie Parker, I didn't know very well. I met him and I played with him once or twice. I was playing the opening weeks in Birdland when we opened in December 1949. It was a panorama of the history of jazz. The opening act was an old-time Dixieland band, and I fit in there. And at the other end of the spectrum was Lenny Tristano, who played... A wonderful kind of jazz which remains among the most progressive sorts of music that you can find. And there was Lester Young, and I was asked to uh, accompany him. So I did double duty on that show, from being the, in the Dixieland band to being in sort of a swing rhythm section for Lester Young. Was it thrilling for you to be at Birdland? Absolutely. It was thrilling. To work with Charlie Parker, even, even that one or two times, and Dizzy... Uh, once or twice here and there, it was was thrilling. You know, those are histor historical people. Did you feel that at the time? Yes, yes, absolutely. And if you listen to what they're playing, you, you can just see the marvelous creativity of both of those guys, but in particular, Charlie Parker. You recorded an album called A Child is Born, which is a song by Thad Jones that you play in the style of 11 different pianists. It's quite a range from Scott Joplin to Cecil Taylor. Well, it's clear I was trying to present myself as uh, Mr. Um, Eclectic, and it worked pretty well. I, I got some of them kind of okay. Well, you can play in many, many styles, but you also have your own Well, that's style. the thing. That's the thing why I, I, I look back on that album as, as a not quite a totally wonderful achievement, because after a while I decided I'd get out of the business of trying to play like everybody else and begin to explore what it was I might do that was a little bit original. And since then, I've been working more on that.
And how did you develop your own style of playing? Like Teddy Wilson said, by sitting down at the piano and doing it. You moved into arranging. Did you learn it on your own, <clears throat> trial and error? How did you go about figuring out what that meant? It's a little easier for a pianist to become an arranger because arranging is an organization of music which is almost completely played in a performance on piano. If you know your way around the piano, you pretty much have an insight into the way the rest of the orchestra works. And again, because I've been a sideman on so many occasions of different kinds of music, it wasn't weird to be asked to arrange, and I, that came along with the territory, really. You played with bands that backed some of the truly great singer and arranged some of their songs as well. Did you arrange for Lee Wiley? I did. We made a nice album with Leo Wiley. I was the arranger and uh, music director on that. And she's very influential on a lot of other singers. Look down, look down That lonesome road Before you travel on And uh, she expressed a jazz way of doing things vocally. And not all singers do that. Some of the singers come from a different sort of a vocal background. She came from a jazz background. I did similar things for Rosemary Clooney, Tony Bennett. Did you enjoy working with singers? Oh, sure. Yeah. Working with singers is a great deal of what a, a piano player or a piano player or arranger gets to do in this career. And what it means is that you are the advisor to the singer if he or she needs advice. You rehearse, you, you maybe have a hand in the selection of tunes, although very often the, the tunes are selected already and you're assigned to orchestrate them. But still, there are rehearsals and changes to be made and uh, what is the right tempo, what is the right key, shall we have strings or not, is this going to be a, a big orchestra, a small orchestra? Oh, a lot of technical questions you have to work out with the singer. And then you have to conduct the orchestra in the recording studio. And then, of course, being in that position can lead to other sorts of live performance, concert performances. You did a series of solo albums devoted to composers like Gershwin, Cole Porter, Harold Arlen, and Duke Ellington. And I, I think I'm curious, thinking about what you said about Lee Wiley, she was a jazz singer. Duke Ellington is the jazz composer here. The others write music that obviously can be put into a jazz idiom, but Ellington was the jazz guy. Can you tell me a little bit about you working with his music? Ellington was unique. He had this band from his earliest days of very talented musicians, and the band stayed with him throughout his career. Some of the people there, like Harry Carney, were actually friends who had played with him for 40 years and more. He composed things on the keyboard, or he composed things for the band directly. He had a very individual way of looking at things, and his pieces, they set the standards, really, for jazz compositions. And then something new came on the musical scene, the Moog synthesizer. And Dick Hyman was one of the first people to record with it. It was so interesting to work with because it gave you a range of musical possibilities that even a pipe organ would not have been able to do.
On the other hand, it was limited to one tone at a time, so you couldn't do a full performance on it except by overdubbing, by playing along with yourself on previous recorded tracks. It was not unlike the electric organs that I had played. In fact, that was my chief entry into it, the electronic sounds that you could modify and play in various interesting uh, ways. But with the Moog, there are a lot of possibilities that simply didn't exist in other keyboards. You could glissando. You could go from a low note to a high note without the individual tones so that you go, and you could control the rate of the ascent or the descent and all sorts of of manners of producing a tone. And uh, once we got into it, it was the most interesting thing. And I did two albums on the Moog. But it, it should be said again that it was not an organ. You could not make a finished performance on it. You had to use it several times over in sequence. And occasionally, and I did this, prepare uh, the accompaniment of, say, piano, bass, and drums beforehand, and then overdub the instrument one or two tracks above. How did you move into composing for the screen? Well, it was an out an outgrowth of working with singers, with orchestras, with this and that. It just seemed a natural evolution of things. I did several films bef- before I began to work for uh, Woody Allen. It was just one more thing you could do in the studios. Where do you come into the process, or does does that change from film to film, director to director? Well, it changes very much with uh, people's different approach to how to do this. Let's take Woody Allen. Well, the idea, first of all, is, is there a musical scene? That determines a lot of the other music. It determines what you have leading into it, leading out of it. Then the other great point of uh, film music is, what is the viewer supposed to be feeling? supposed to provide a soundtrack for his emotions and so is it a sad scene a comic scene does it require a commentary by the orchestra or should the orchestra be playing music you're largely unaware of but is influencing your reception of the drama these are all questions that you work out with the director who may have some definite ideas but the composer can bring some points of view that the director might not have thought of so that you must have a meeting of the minds and a confidence in each other's approach. And sometimes you get it right, and sometimes you don't. But mostly you get it right or you won't be hired the next time. You perform quite a bit now, and you're usually playing solo piano. Yeah. Well, in recent years, I've settled into a lot more performing and I've, I've become, become more concentrated on my solo playing, and I like that very much. Two things. One, what do you like about playing solo? And the second is, how has your playing changed throughout the years, your performing? Well, I think by now, my playing has changed a bit. While I will still play on request, 
any of the earlier old-time stride or rag pieces that people want. I'm really interested more in playing improvs because I think that's where I do my best work. In the kind of music we are involved in, we have the privilege of changing from performance to performance. It isn't doing the same Beethoven sonata in the same way. Get an idea. Work things out on the spot. To me, that's the biggest incentive, to get an idea and work it out on the spot and to give yourself uh, some latitude. What do you like about the solo recital? Well, the solo recital, it's all up to you. It isn't totally about piano playing. You do have to have some kind of a uh, sympathetic uh, relationship with the audience, and I've learned enough to have that. There are times when you can sit down, almost anything you play will sound fine, and the other times you're struggling because you haven't played enough at the keyboard for a few days, and it comes out. How much do you practice a day? Well, I don't practice a great deal, but I have to practice every day. I mean, it might be 20 minutes, a half hour, an hour, unless I'm getting ready for a particular vehicle, which, you know, it might be more. But on the whole, you just have to say hello to the piano. (laughs) That's a nice image. You created and headed jazz in July at the 92nd Street Y. You were in charge. You were the artistic director for two decades. What is that program, and what is it that you wanted to accomplish with it? Along with Hadassah Markson, who was the producer, the idea was to uh, have, for the first time, a jazz series at, at the 92nd Street Y to present in a concert form the jazz that you might or might not expect to hear in a nightclub or a concert situation. I was connected well enough with the jazz communities in New York and and somewhat in California, that we could get performers and put them together in uh, interesting ways. After 20 years, I didn't want to do it anymore, but it is now in the hands of uh, Bill Charlap, who continues that tradition wonderfully. You have worn so many hats. Is there one that you enjoy more than another? What I really like, the core of everything, it's, it's playing solo piano. That's what I do more and more. The other stuff uh, is is frequently interesting and fun and uh, gives you a sense of achievement. But it starts really, and apparently it ends that way too, with uh, being a solo pianist. And to be named a 2017 NEA Jazz Master, what does that mean to you? It means a great deal to me. It is marvelous to be named an NEA Jazz Master. It's an honor that I uh, couldn't have ever expected. I'm really uh, thrilled and honored to uh, be recognized for whatever it is that I've achieved. Can't tell you how much I appreciate that, especially because I've gotten so ancient. And to have the, uh, that award at the time of my 90th birthday 
is uh, something I can't express how wonderful I feel about that. That's pianist and 2017 NEA Jazz Master, Dick Hyman. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.